0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple-related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I am Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, April 13th, Friday the 13th. This is episode number 63. We have two sponsors. We'd like to thank both of them, everyme.com getharvest.com we will tell you more about them as the show goes on as always we also want to say thank you very very much to joint.com who provides the bandwidth for this and many of our episodes we host with them you should too joint.com
1: coming to you live from skype five
0: skype five
1: yes i don't know if all my settings are right i unchecked the thing that said like automatically adjust microphone something or other good Automatically adjust microphone settings. I unchecked that. Good. But uh, otherwise, I haven't tweaked it because I just got sick of the other Skype. So, I now I got to find where the mute button is in this interface. It's probably the little microphone thing. Mute your microphone. All right, here we go. Let's see. Hey, it worked. And I can actually see when I'm muted. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, you were struggling with that other one, weren't you?
1: Yeah, I was just sick of it not working. And so, now I'm dealing with this gigantic interface that it, I don't know, whatever, but if it works we'll go with it so I sound the same oh uh, yeah it's a little
0: different and I'm tweaking your audio right now
1: I didn't make any other changes to settings like I just install, installed Skype 5 and unchecked that checkbox nothing else I touched
0: yeah but who knows what they're doing different
1: I know I mean that checkbox wasn't even there in the old version so <laughs> you're right who knows <laughs>
0: who knows new codecs new other things whatever yeah doesn't matter
1: it's all good alright do you
0: want that to be part of the show or should we start right now I'll leave it up to you I'll leave it in alright how are you? Doing fine. Good. Sorry we're a little late getting, uh, getting started. Thank you for your patience. No problem. How are things up there in uh, Newton, Massachusetts? They're
1: just dandy. I'm looking at my notes for the show, and it looks like exactly the same as last week's show.
0: Then, so, Well, knowing, knowing uh,
1: full well that last week was the perfect show, uh, I expect another perfect show. So... For people who weren't interested in the topics last week, as a reminder, we talked about Mac App Store upgrades and readability. I expect you will also not like this week's topics because it's going to be a lot more stuff on Mac App Store upgrades and readability. And then at the very, very end, I do have, uh, I guess we talked about the flashback thing a little bit, maybe Instagram a little bit. But who knows if we'll even get to those. So that's my plan for today's show.
0: I like that. Sounds good to me.
1: And Thumbs up. Despite me saying that I didn't want any more car follow up, it continues to stream in. I'm cutting most of it off. I just put in one or two little items of car follow up, quick ones. Okay. First one is about parking in Paris. This is three shows <laughs> ago talking about the cars not touching. Right. And then some people said that they, you know, they bump bumpers when they're parking cars in Paris. And then I invited foolishly French people to respond to me and tell me if this is something that actually happens very large volume of responses from people the i will these are the two themes that i brought away from this feedback the first theme is that the vast 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 majority of people who responded said yes that really happens cars really do push their bumpers against each other when they're parking in paris i, I think i only can remember one maybe two people who said oh that doesn't happen that person's crazy and they're always sandwiched by like three other emails that came within the same minute saying the opposite so I'm assuming all these people who claim to have either visited France or lived in France for years or be French, be French citizens. I'm trusting them and saying, yes, this really does happen in France. And the other big theme that everybody volunteered that I didn't ask about at all was that the other thing to do in Paris specifically, apparently, or maybe in all of France, but they all everyone kept saying Paris, is to leave the parking brake off on your car. Mm And you do this so that when the cars try to squeeze in the spots that they can like push your car forward a little bit. If there's not quite enough room, if your parking brake is off, they'll just kind of nudge your car forward to make room for themselves. Right. And everybody volunteered this spontaneously. They don't know about each other, you know, giving this information. We never mentioned it on the show, but like a good 60 or 70 percent of the people who said, yes, cars do touch, felt compelled to add this bit about the parking brake. And it makes me think like, are there no hills in Paris? I've never been to france so i don't know maybe it's very flat but no, it's you just your- it's
0: all it's just like florida in that way it's totally flat there's no mountains there's no curvature even to the road it's all straight roads
1: well the, the roads are winding but it's like even if it's a slight slope if you leave your car in gear i guess it won't roll away but if it's in gear can you push it with another car easily because the parking brake <laughs> is off i don't know i'm talking about a stick shift car i don't know anyway this this is apparently a thing so we'll just leave that as it is. Someday I'll go to France and I will f- investigate this in person by trying to shove park cars with my hand and see if they really do roll. I could what. ask.
0: I could, my, my uncle is, uh, is French uh, from, you know, spent many years in Paris and uh, Brittany uh, from there. And uh, he and my aunt go back frequently. I could ask them if that's true.
1: Yeah, maybe it's changing. Although some people did provide photo evidence of like uh, Minis who have a second bumper mounted higher <laughs> to better meet with the bumpers of the car least the Minis' rear bumper is apparently very low and doesn't really meet up well with other cars' bumpers. So there was one picture of a Mini with a second bumper attached to it so that it had something to properly meet with the other the bumpers of the other cars. Okay. that's Oh, and someone sent me a link to a Google Maps thing showing where all the car manufacturing plants are and head and car company headquarters and stuff in Germany with like little pins dropped on all of them. So I'll put that in the show notes because I figured that person spent a while to make that little map.
0: I, I had also some follow up. I remember we were discussing the, that you can go and pick up your BMW and have the BMW experience, uh, in North Carolina where they have some kind of special plant. Uh, it's actually in South Carolina,
1: yeah, the Carolina people don't like it when you get that mixed up.
0: Right. I lived in North Carolina for a year, uh or so, and uh I I love North Carolina. Uh and I I did I was aware at one point that it was in South Carolina. Uh but I I like North Carolina a little bit better. So, I'm sorry. Uh I made <gasps> that mistake.
1: All right, yes, uh, many people sent that correction that it is in South Carolina. Yeah. I should have caught that too, but like they do tend to blend in my mind. Yeah, as as, as they
0: should. They should all be called North Carolina. They just, that's, you know, better yeah. basketball.
1: I drove through both those states multiple times, but never stopped except for gas. <laughs> all right. Um, so, and this was a, a follow-up to the After Dark to the last show. Uh, for some reason when we were putting the link... We, in the After Dark, we talked a little bit about PlayStation games and there was a bunch of links to PlayStation bundles and they ended up in the show and not in the After Dark and then people said, what's with these PlayStation links in the show notes? Did you even talk about PlayStation on the show? Uh, so, no, I apologize for that. Those That was actually discussed in the After Dark, which you can find if you're interested. Uh, but related to that, one person sent me some information because I mentioned in the After Dark that I was reluctant to give Sony my credit card number on the PlayStation network because of all the security problems they've had. And uh, Gabriel Pagan wrote in to say that You don't have to give Sony your credit card number. You can buy a gift card from Amazon Ah. and then enter the gift card number into the PlayStation Network. So if you're not willing to, if you've decided not to spend $400 on a PlayStation so you can play Shadow of the Colossus, Eco, uh, The Last Guardian, and Journey, and the only thing stopping you is that you didn't want to give your credit card number to buy Journey on PSN, now you don't have that problem. You can go to Amazon and buy the gift card. And the hilarious thing about this I put the link in the show notes to the gift card. That uh, link that was provided by Gabriel is that if you go and you buy a ten dollar gift card, it costs you sixteen dollars and eighty eight cents.
0: Really? Yes, it yeah. does. I'm looking at it right now. PlayStation Network card subscription yeah. length ten dollars.
1: Format card price sixteen eighty eight. And it's not like a Xbox like points or Wii points <laughs> for this, some sort of conversion. This is just regular dollars. You were only getting ten dollars of value out of the sixteen dollar card. That's weird. Why does it cost more than ten dollars? Maybe it's just supply and demand and nobody wants to give their credit card to PlayStation. Like, "Aha! These, we have a captive audience. These people are so scared to enter their credit card into the PlayStation network that we can actually charge them $16 for a $10 card and they'll still do it because that $6 is worth <laughs> not having to give Sony a credit I already gave Sony my credit card so I'm already doomed. But save yourself if you want to send this extra 6 bucks. I mean, maybe you could find these cards are cheaper.
0: I you know I what you think. could also do is another idea. You could get a credit card that you use exclusively for yeah. just the PlayStation uh, or something, you know, things that you really don't trust the way that many of us have, like a throwaway email address. You could have a essentially a card that you could watch very, very closely. And if you see anything strange, you immediately cancel the card or, or you know, charge back, whatever it is.
1: I still have bad memories of implementing uh, credit card processing. I'm the first e-commerce store that I uh, that I wrote myself dealing with single use credit card numbers that used to be really popular back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Do you remember those?
0: Not really. What were they? Just they, like, like the what they on single issues,
1: yeah. use. Yeah, they would they would issue you. I don't know how it worked. Like a card, or like you went to a website or something, and you got a credit card number that can only be used one time, and it would like generate you a new credit card number, so huh. you wouldn't have to worry about your number being stolen. But these one time use numbers didn't con- didn't conform to the same standards as the other numbers. So all your detection algorithms for figuring out if it's a Visa or whatever, and they had different processing requirements. It didn't behave like regular cards, and you had to be careful and know if they were single use because that meant you couldn't charge them a second time if you wanted to. You know, uh, use the same card number over again, you shouldn't store it. And it was a big mess. But I, they don't seem to be that popular anymore. I guess they were probably annoying for customers. But that would be a similar example. If they still have these, or if you still have one, use a one time use number for your PSN thing. All right, enough of that. Uh, WWDC. We talked about WWDC alerts, that service that sends you a text. And we speculated about, uh, I said, uh, I was wondering what their numbers were like. And the reason I was wondering is because I had seen a tweet by Casey Liss sometime that day or earlier, and I couldn't remember the numbers from it. So quickly after the show, Casey reminded me of what those tweets were. And then after that, the WWC Alerts Twitter account updated, uh, tweeted updated numbers. So as of sometime around last week, WWC Alerts claimed that there are around 5,000 tickets available for WWC. That's uh, an assumption, I guess, because nobody knows except for Apple. But based on historical sales, that's how much they're expected to be. And WWC Alerts has 9,000 subscribers so far. And that could be, you know, increased by now. So there you have it.
0: We also should mention uh, that some rumors about dates had been posted. Uh, One of them here that I just talked about on Amplified show with, uh, with, with Jim Dalrymple. I'll put it into that. oh you, it, it was a good one. Uh, I'll I'll put this into our show notes as well. Uh, it's an article actually came out February second from uh, Mac Rumors uh, that simply has a screenshot of the uh, I believe this is the Moscone's event calendar, uh, and I'll put a link to that if I can. Yeah, there it is. Um, that shows there is what is simply called a corporate meeting, which is code for WWDC uh, for June eleventh through June fifteenth. That's been there forever, though. That's been there for months, right? Absolutely. And that is the only, yeah, I mean, at least since since February, if not longer, but that is the only, you know, levels one through three are blocked off for a convention slash trade show during that time period. And, And as long as Apple plans to have it at Moscone, which why wouldn't they? But maybe they're not. But if they are, that would seem like the only time yeah, that it would possibly do it. So I, I think those are the dates that if you're planning on booking you know, a, a, an early hotel or something, you could always cancel it. But that seems like the right time to do it.
1: Yeah, I've had that in my calendar since, you know, I guess, the beginning of the year when we first saw that. But I'd, I'm not willing to make the risk of actually starting to buy stuff. I mean, even if even if you like, bought stuff and you were right, what if you don't get a ticket then?
0: Well, I'm, I won't be buying a ticket. But for you, I think that would be yeah. a problem. Because you're very... You have made it clear on this show that you're very interested in attending the sessions i i have no interest in attending the the sessions uh but i think uh i i will i will likely be there because if for no other reason this is the only time and place where we will be in a a city and town where pretty much everybody who has a show on five by five or at least the shows if if not everybody at least the shows that i co-host people with this is the only time we'll all be together um so it makes sense to go and uh, do do a five by five thing out there.
1: When are you going to do that, though? We're all going to be in WWC, dutifully attending sessions.
0: Yeah, but the the sessions don't <laughs> go very late into the evenings. They they tend generally tend to end before dinner. So having a having a dinner would be a, a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah, we could do that. You're, you're treating everybody, right? Of course.
0: All right. Are you that concerned? I mean, no. yes, I of course I am, but. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you that concerned that well, like I, you might have to chip I, fifteen bucks into a dinner? I mean, I'll, yes, I'm buying your dinner. I'm buying everybody's dinner, but
1: yeah, it depends on how much I end up paying for hotel and everything. Yeah. Like I managed to get a pretty good deal last time, but that's especially you know if you're waiting until after you get tickets to book your hotel. You know, it's not at that point. Like, what if they announce the tickets to go for sale like two weeks before it happens? And these, these hotels all jack up their prices as soon as they know that there's some big event coming. It's just supply and demand. If yeah. Many people are demanding rooms. yeah. So I don't know how much this is all going to run me. It could be expensive.
0: Uh, you don't have to worry about it.
1: Uh, so I got an email. This is unrelated to anything, but it, uh, it falls in the follow-up because it's, uh, I guess, it's related to the Mac App Store. Nick Dirk wrote in to tell me that he had this problem on the Nec- App Store. Nick Dirk? N-E-K, first name. D-E-R-K, last name.
0: That I sounds think. like a really cool movie uh, villain name. Yes.
1: And uh, he had this problem that I've thought about a few times when looking at uh, App Store pages, where he was looking at a game, and you know when you're on the App Store, I think this is an iOS game, but it doesn't matter. The, the stores look similar. Uh, there On the left side, there's this requirement section that tells you, yeah, this is an iOS game. There's a requirement section that tells you what this game runs on. And so there's some text there, and I assume that text is, this is a good question for Marco, but I assume that text is generated from the person who puts up the app, like checking a bunch of checkboxes or somehow indicating what devices the thing runs on. Maybe you can even bake it into your application by setting some things in Xcode or whatever. But the example from this game, it says requirements compatible, compatible with iPhone, iPod touch and iPad requires iOS 3.1.3 or later. So that seems like, you know, that, and that's not something that the developer wrote. That's just like the metadata along the left side, along with like title and rating and all, you know, release date and whatever, right? Uh, and he bought this game because he has an iPhone 3G running iOS 4.2, which seems like it fulfills the requirements because it has iPhone, iPod Touch, iPad. And then the OS version is 3.1.3 or later. And 4.2 is greater than that. And he's got an iPhone 3G, so it should be fine. So he bought it and it didn't run on his phone. Uh, and he complained about it to Apple. And the, and Apple refunded his purchase, which was nice. Uh, and then he said, well, you know, why does your store tell me that this should run, uh, but it doesn't? And, and the, he complained to the developer, too. And the developer's like, oh, well, if you look at the description for the game, this is the thing that the developer writes that's collapsed by default. You know, it's under the click here and then it, the more link and then it expands down. The description that the developer writes says it's a, a game for the iPhone 4 iPad, iPhone 3GS, and iPod Touch. And the developer wrote that, and that is accurate. But why is that not reflected in the requirements section? And so Apple said they would flag this for review and try to figure out what's going on there. But I'm always suspicious of those requirements, and that's why I always expand the little more link to read the description uh, and read the reviews. And I encourage everybody who's working, who's looking in the App Store to read the descriptions and read some of the reviews, like sort by most critical or something to figure out whether the thing, this thing is really going to run on your device or not, especially for games and stuff, because sometimes they require a particular CPU or GPU speed and stuff like that. Uh, so this is an area of the store that Apple could stand to improve. And, and I don't know how long ago this example was, but I looked up the game and it's still like this. Like the thing on the left side says something different than the description, which you can't see because it's collapsed by default. So shame on Apple there. <laughs> All right, now finally, Mac App Store upgrades. Lots and lots of feedback on this. Oh, yeah. Also, lots of feedback on readability too, but we're going to do a Mac App Store upgrades first because I think I have more to say about that. Maybe. We'll see. Oh, someone in the chat room says the requirements are taken from build settings and info.plist for device requirements.
0: Oh, by the way, I'm, I, this is great news. I think everybody's going to be relieved to hear this. I'm back in the chat room.
1: I heard that, but then I don't see you saying anything. You're just lurking. Well, I'm, I'm reading. All right. If you make use of a new SKD feature. What is SKD? SDK. All right. Typo.
0: Anyway. I can't believe that people in the chat room have typos and I'm
1: leaving again. I don't a, anything hard, do. Yeah, Now that's it. <laughs> the honeymoon is over. <laughs> so uh, I tried to sort the Mac App Store upgrades feedback into themes. So we'll see how well I did it here. Uh, one of the themes in a lot of the email that I got was the idea that it seems like Apple is acknowledging the potential existence of Upgrades. In their wording for the user interface, and particularly people point out in the iTunes application for iOS apps, where the button that lets you update all your applications, it says download all free updates. And the fact that the word free is there is like it's distinguishing between free updates and non-free updates. Now, iTunes being the typical UI mess that it is, when you click on the button next to download all free updates, the dialog box that appears that prompts you for your password the button that lets you continue doing the thing you want to do is labeled buy. So that doesn't make much sense to me. You just click right. the button that says free, then you enter your password and you click buy. And I know if it was my parents or something, they would be saying, is this going to charge me more money for something? I clicked on it and it said free, but the button says buy and you have to go, yeah, just hit buy. I know it says buy. It's just the standard dial. Whatever. So that's kind of a mess. But I have, I've noticed that as well. Uh, but I don't know how much you can read into that. Maybe they're just trying to reassure people that they're free. And not trying to distinguish between free updates and a potential future non-free update. Uh, I don't know. But lots and lots of people latched onto that as their hope that someday uh, paid upgrades would be coming to the store. Shira Wild wrote in with a good meta question. He says, are upgrades widely understood, a widely understood notion for consumers? And that's something we didn't talk about. Like, for non-nerds, for people who have never really bought software before getting an iOS device or before having a Mac with the Mac App Store, do they even understand what a paid upgrade is or an upgrade at all? Like, (laughs) maybe their notion notion of software actually does match what Apple's been doing where you pay some money or not for a thing that makes an icon appear on your thing, right? And... (laughs) if they understand that when the little other little picture thing has a number on it, that it tells you there's updates to your applications right. and you get a newer version of thing. And maybe you notice like, Oh, it looks a little different now. Like they added stuff to work with friends or there's, you know, usually more ads all over it or whatever. Like the idea that newer versions are available. I think Apple makes that easy enough that you could figure out how to make that happen, you know, on your phone or on your Mac or whatever. But clearly nowhere in that process is more payment taking place and it's like you just get an updated version of that app. I don't even know if people understand that especially in the case where like if you do an upgrade and like oh I like the old version better they moved buttons around or something you know you didn't have to pay for it but you wish you had the old version and of course Apple with with the app store provides no way for you to say, no easy way for regular consumers to say oh no 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 bring me back to the old version. I guess they could restore from a backup but even that I think is too complicated for the average person. For the average person if you figure out the upgrades thing and get a new version of Word of the Friends and you don't like it and you wish you had the previous version back, I think you're immediately beyond your capacity to get that done without doing a little bit of research or learning something. Uh, And that might be frustrating, but certainly no part of that experience is that you have to pay again for this application. Uh, And he, he points out that on iOS you have this problem where if you were to buy a second version... And you have data associated with the application. It's not easy for the new version of the application to share the data with the old one because they're sandbox and everything. Uh, so that's a confusing thing as well. But like by not having paid upgrades, it you know the, the impression that you're giving users on these platforms is that you buy an app once and it's yours forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a a later feedback that gets that gets more into this thing, but I, but I think that's a good question of like this thing. We keep talking about upgrades because we're all Mac users and we know about like paying. Paying for a new version of Photoshop and paying less than you would pay if you were buying it for the first time, that upgrade pricing. I don't think that concept exists in the mind of most consumers who are like buying iPhones or whatever. Uh, so that, that's a good point. Steve Craig points out that paid upgrades in the Mac App Store or the iOS App Store would certainly be a big crowd pleaser to announce a WWDC. I think it would be, but I don't think that makes it any more or less likely. That's really not how Apple Apple operates. And people like the idea that Apple is carefully planning something and like, oh, they're intentionally not giving us paid upgrade because they want to announce a WWDC and have it be exciting. It's not really the way they work. I mean, they'll hold something back if they have to, if it's like a week or so or a month or so. Uh, And then maybe they'll announce it a little early if it's landing on an event like WWDC. But Apple decides when WWDC is, and they certainly haven't been holding for years this feature so they could have something to announce at WWDC. It's not the way they work. What you get at WWDC is a new phone and iOS 6 preview. But probably, you know, that's not why we don't have... It's not centered around events. That's not how Apple works. Chris Clark wrote in to tell me that the the concept of one low price for everything and no upgrades is making him adjust his buying habits. So he's an Aperture customer. And so Aperture used to be like this $200 app or whatever it was. And then when it went into the app store, they're like, hey, it's 70 bucks. And there's no more upgrades. It's just 70 or 80 bucks for everybody. And so uh, that eliminates this buy initially at a high price and then get the upgrade to the next version of the lower price thing. Everything is at a lower price. So yeah, welcome everybody. Make more people buy software. But now he's in a situation where... Aperture 3 is already pretty old. He says like two years old. And he's reluctant to buy it because he knows that if Aperture 4 comes out like, you know, in a couple months or something, which he thinks it should be just around the corner, he's going to have to buy it all over again. Whereas if Aperture 3 was, you know, $200, but he knew he could get an upgrade to Aperture 4 for 20 he would buy Aperture 3 now to get on board the upgrade train and then pay the lower price uh, later. So now he's kind of like hesitant to buy because it's like if if you buy the old version the day before the new version comes out there's you have no recourse you don't get the new version for a discounted price or free or anything like that it's like oh well sucks to be you right whereas in the old model if you buy photoshop cs5 the day before cs6 comes out you can upgrade to cs6 for a much reduced price instead of having to pay the full price for cs6 again and again i think apple's idea is well okay so lower all your prices so that it's not painful to get the new version no matter what yeah. Like lower your prices so that it's even lower than the upgrade price would be. And isn't that doesn't make everybody happy. But people used to the old way have new things to worry about there. He, he points out that maybe it's because he's an Apple nerd and watch for upgrades and thinks about this type of thing. And maybe it's not relevant at all to a regular consumer. And that's probably true, too. But this is another example of people who are used to one model of software, even just as a consumer, if not as a developer, might have trouble adjusting to whatever the heck Apple's trying to do. Especially since they seem so reluctant to fully articulate what it is they're trying to do. I had some questions last time about in-app purchase and how that relates to the Mac App Store. And I said that, you know, I didn't know if it was in the Mac App Store and you said it was and it isn't in, in the Mac App Store. But subsequent feedback and me actually looking at the documentation afterwards has shown me that in-app purchase isn't really a way to handle paid upgrades at all. Uh, there's two ways you can do in-app purchase in the Mac App Store. The first one is where you're unlocking features. Uh, So you give them an application and everything that that application can do is already built into the application. And within in-app purchase, you can unlock functionality, right? So you can have like the plain version and then pay extra and it unlocks all the pro features for something. Isn't that like a paid upgrade? Well, no, not really, because the paid upgrade is like you release a piece of software and then you work for six more months on version two of that software. And then you want to get some incremental revenue from the people who already bought version one. And if you're working for six months, that means the stuff you finished at the end of those six months isn't in the executable that the version one people have. And I suppose you could release a new version of version one with all these features locked into it, and then charge them to unlock it. Uh, but I don't, I don't know how that. Like, what if your application is radically different? Right, then you give them version two. And, or say they got version one and they've unlocked features in version one, then you give them version two, but you don't change the name of the application. So you get version two, but it looks totally different, but now stuff is locked again. It's a strange, I don't think that's what Apple intends in-app purchases to uh, to be like as a replacement for upgrades. Or maybe they do. It's hard to tell. Again, they don't really express their intent with these features, but it's hard to tell, like, is this how you expect us to upgrade applications to keep giving people new executables with... Uh, successively larger portions of it hidden as locked away things. And then you pay inside the application to unlock those new things. And then we give you a new version that has, I guess, has even more stuff locked. And then you pay to unlock those things. What about the things you're unlocking or revisions to the current features? I, I'm just thinking as an app developer, like how would you manage this set of features that have been progressively unlocked? Because you're not always adding features. Sometimes you're refining the old ones. So I don't, I don't quite see how that works. And especially if you're going to radically alter your product, like version 2 is like a major overhaul from version 1. You can't keep releasing to the same product because you're kind of stomping on the version 1 people's toes. You know, Uh, We'll talk more about that in a a little bit too, the whole idea of letting people keep using what they like to use instead of being forced to upgrade. Uh, And the second model is where you, for in-app purchase, you just provide content. So you can't provide executables. You can't modify your applications uh, bundle, as Apple calls it. You can just provide like levels or data that you can put in the documents folder. And that obviously doesn't really apply to doing an upgrade to an application. If I can't alter the executable or any part of it, I can just provide new data. For games and stuff, that might work if you're just giving new levels. But for an application, you really need to alter the executable to provide new features. Uh, Some musings on Will Shipley's blog, which I have again put in the show notes. His uh, Mac App Store needs paid upgrades. Thinking about it more afterwards and reading all the feedback, it increasingly looks to me kind of like, uh, you know about talking to the bear? It sounds like something you would know about.
0: Talking to the bear. Like smoking the bear thing? or the talking? You've never heard of that?
1: It's like when you talk to a stuffed animal bear yeah. to work something out. You're talking to an inanimate object hmm. because the act of explaining it helps you work out what's so going this, on. This is for people who don't have like radio internet radio shows yeah
0: okay i haven't done that
1: i don't know if it's a stuffed bear i don't even know if it's the right thing but it's it's don't i don't recommend
0: going to talking-bear.com don't do that
1: (laughs) all right actually do
0: it i'll put it into the into the the show notes
1: yeah so it getting away from the well-known saying that i apparently don't remember very well (laughs) uh, uh, looking at the blog it's kind of like Will Shipley is having a conversation with himself about how he has to change his business, right? Like the act of writing down, it's kind of like when you're going to complain to somebody about something or writing a long email to complain to them. And as you write it, as you try to articulate and justify your position, you lead yourself to the things you can do to get around it. Uh, and that, this thing kind of reads like that, like, Here's how my business works. Here's how the new model makes my business not work the same way. And here's how I can't make money the same way I used to. He doesn't quite get to, and therefore, he only does a little bit, and therefore, I would have to change my business in X, Y, and Z way to continue to make money. I would not be able to provide upgrades ongoing. I'd have to make new products. Because, you know, he kind of touches on that a little bit. But that's, that's how I'm starting to view this. And that's how a lot of the people who are don't really have much stake in the development. Like, they're just consumers. They say, well, yeah, or I don't really care if it's tough for consumers. And maybe Apple doesn't either. They're just saying, oh, you know, just adjust. Apple decides this is what we're going to do. And developers will just have to adjust to it. And that, a big blog post like that from Will Shipley is kind of like him coming to terms with how the old model is not going to work for him and possible ways that he can adjust to it. Of course, he's also complaining and saying, look, Apple, if you would just provide this feature then I wouldn't have to adjust in this way and we could continue to make money the normal way we did. And he also argues for why he thinks the way he used to make money is actually good for consumers uh, in terms of being able to make a major new versions of a product instead of just making one product and then quickly moving on and saying, well, that's done. I'm never going to look at that product again. I don't care if there's obvious areas where it can be enhanced. You know, It'll never get any better. Maybe I'll just do bug fixes and moving on because it's the only way I can make money. Um, Another random point from the interwebs, Uh, Adam Highland tweeted uh, that both me and Mark, a lot of people addressing both of us in a group on this topic, are missing the main distinction between the iOS and the Mac app stores. Volume growth in the platform. And I tweeted back to him that I thought he understood what he was getting at, but then he made another tweet that made me think that we were talking about different things. So I'm still not sure exactly what he was talking about, but here's what I took from that tweet. Uh, And it's true that we didn't talk about it. When the platform is growing rapidly, new customers can far outweigh upgrading customers. So, for example, on iOS, who cares if the customers you sold version one of your product if you can't get any more money from them? Just release a new version of your product that that all the, the, the original purchasers get for free that's a massive, you know, awesome rewrite because the The amount of new people you're going to sell to is so much bigger than the amount of people you use because it's like a hockey stick type growth graph. So I don't care if I don't get any money from any existing customers. My new customers are where it's at because there's so many more of them. And if your platform is growing with a hockey stick, hockey stick type growth curve, that works out fine. But the Mac platform, even though it's growing and it's growing faster than the rest of the PC market, it is not a hockey stick quite yet. And so now, existing customers are a much more significant portion of your customer base there aren't ten times as many new customers waiting and ready and waiting out there to buy your product maybe it's only like fifty percent more or a hundred percent more customers but not a thousand or ten thousand and so you have to consider like look uh, I would really like to get some incremental revenue for the six months or years worth of work I did on this application from the people who already bought version one because I'm delivering lots of value and if I give it to them for free i'm how, how will I recoup my costs? Are there enough new users to make my money back? And I think that is an important distinction. And I don't think it's lost on Apple, but it's, a kind, of, it's kind of the reason you don't hear iOS devs complaining quite as much about this. Because on the iOS, especially in the beginning, this really was true. So what if you can't make money off the people who already bought your app? So many more people buy iPhones every year, like growing like crazy, that the existing customers are just lost in the noise. Whereas on the Mac platform, it's much more mature and not growing as fast, at least so far. And the Mac devs are much harder hit by this type of phenomenon. And that's kind of why I think you see them complaining about it more than the iOS devs at this point. The iOS devs complained, like, in theory, but in practice, it like, once they saw that, okay, well, I, the new customers are dominating anyway, so I guess I can just continue to go along and it'll be okay. On Marco's show this week, he mentioned something that I meant to get to in my discussion, which is the Joel Spolsky's strategy letter five, Roman numeral five, from way back when, where he talks about commoditizing your compliments, which I think is not a concept that he came up with. But in typical Joel fashion, he's just explaining something from economics or whatever, or his uh, past experience and sending it out to a wider audience. And uh, Marco talked about this on his show. And I think it's a good point about one of the things that Apple could be trying to do. I grabbed a few passages from it so I could read it here because Marco mentioned it. Uh, but for people who haven't read this article, this is what commoditizing your compliments is about. Uh, so first, uh, a compliment is a product that I'm quoting from Joel's thing here. A compliment is a product that you usually buy together with another product. Gas and cars are compliments. Computer hardware is a classic compliment of a computer operating system. Babysitters are a compliment of a dinner at a fine restaurant. That's typical Joel, uh, humor there. So that's what a compliment is. Uh, and he says, demand for a product increases when the prices, uh, prices of its complements decrease. For example, if flights to Miami become cheaper, demand for hotel rooms in Miami goes up because more people are flying to Miami and need a room. So, uh, in general, a company's strategic interest is going to be to get the price of their complements as low as possible. Uh, the lowest theoretical sustainable price would be commodity price. The price arises when you have a bunch of competitors offering indistinguishable goods. So, smart companies try to commoditize their products' complements. Right? So if you look at Apple's stance on software with that view, and you realize by just simply looking at Apple's balance sheet that they make their money selling hardware, the obvious complement to hardware is software. And according to this theory, it's in Apple's best interest to commoditize software to make it as low cost as possible because the more software its customers uh, can afford to buy and the more software that's available, the more useful its hardware becomes. So they don't want every software product to cost hundreds of dollars because it makes their hardware much less useful. They would like their complement software to be a commodity. Super cheap, really easy to buy. Uh, because the cheaper software is, the more useful their hardware products are and therefore like the bigger profit margins they can get on the hardware or the more demand there will be for the hardware because, hey, to run this software, you need this piece of hardware. So they want to make the big fat profit margins and they want, once you get this piece of hardware, their customers to be able to get all the complements to this hardware really cheaply. Right, the same way car manufacturers, with gas, was like two cents a gallon, because that would make them sell a hell of a lot more cars. Right, uh, if if the complement to cars was, you know, like car insurance or gas was super duper cheap, they can sell a lot more cars. Uh, this is basic economics, right? Now, the the part that Joel says at the end here is that the, the idea you want you you want the price of your complement to go as low as possible to become a commodity price, and his definition of a commodity price is when you have a bunch of competitors offering indistinguishable goods, like you know, oranges are commodity. Like, right? because what's the difference between one orange and another orange? Assuming you're not talking about artisanal, hand massaged, hippie grown oranges. Like, for the most <laughs> part, you know, it's, it's it's a it's a commodity. Uh, there, you know, you're not distinguishing based on. And the, the, when I read this, I think, okay, so this commoditizing your compliments thing is an explanation of why Apple wants to drive down software prices and all this business. Uh, my question is, is this really how Apple sees third party developers? Can software ever be a commodity? Because software is not oranges. It's not like oranges at all. That The goods are not indistinguishable. In fact, I would say the the range and variability of software quality, you know, one application compared to the other, is tremendous. It's bigger than perhaps in any other endeavor. Like, it's certainly larger than the difference between the best television you can buy and the worst television you can buy. The difference between the worst app on the App Store and the best app on the App Store is tremendous, like, orders of magnitude. Uh, Software is just simply not a commodity. So I don't think you can ever get it down to commodity pricing. And the danger of driving the price of software down to get more people to buy apps and so they can drive more value from Apple hardware. There's lots of dangers in that. Like, for example, if you keep driving the price down to the point where your best developers either don't survive or at least don't thrive, like because you're, you're taking away all their profit by trying to drive the prices down, then you're lowering the average quality of the applications available in the app store. And that's bad for you as a hardware vendor. You want, like, Apple Rewards, like with the Apple Design Awards and all this stuff, they're trying to say, they highlight their best apps. They, you know, they show, like, buy our hardware and you can use all these awesome applications. Well, if the people who make the awesomest of the awesome applications can't make enough money to keep making applications that awesome and they have to, like, turn things down and try to make them not quite as good or make them not quite have as many features or, or whatever, that's bad for Apple. I, I don't think you can ever... Software is not gasoline. You know, it may be the complement to their hardware, but it's not, you can never get it down to commodity pricing. And I think it's really dangerous to even attempt to get it down to like, like there's a line. You can't just keep pre- pushing the price of that down through competition and so on and so forth. Because uh, Apple is trying, I think with Apple's efforts to highlight the best software products, that's Apple's effort to highlight the good and to give the best competitors ability, the best software makers and ability to make money. But the other side of those coins is all the other things they seem to be doing to push prices down and make it more difficult for software vendors to to continue to sustain their businesses without altering the way they do things to reduce quality or reduce feature set or both. Uh, And as I said in the last show, even if the developers can survive and learn to thrive, the long-term effect may be that complex feature-rich applications start to dwindle. Replace kind of with like single serving applications like wimpy little apps because the developers say, well, there's no money in continuing to iterate on this application to make version two much better and add these features because we can't get, we don't have a good way to make new revenue. So let's just start on a new application. That's something entirely different. And you end up with this long trail of kind of applications that were made in a year or two and sold for a while and a bug fix a little bit, but never really got any better. And then you got to move on to the next one because you can't make any money off the, the long term commitment to that app. Uh, Marco tweeted today about this in a series of tweets, and I highlighted one of them here. I, I think he was responding to someone else. He said, it's not a race to the bottom, talking about the prices, you know, like how everyone's prices is going down, down, down. It's a shift towards simpler apps, a la carte. So instead of having one big, hunk and complicated application that's continually revised, which again, in the last show I talked about how Apple may be trying to discourage the idea of companies building, built around a single app, an app to just get bigger and more feature-rich as time goes on. Uh, Marco says it's a shift toward simpler apps. And the a la carte idea, I think, is that you buy multiple smaller apps instead of buying one big Hawking app that keeps getting revised and you keep upgrading. That, that's another way of saying the same thing. But I, I, my position is that the complicated apps is a place for them. Shift told simpler is good, but especially on a platform like iOS, where if you have a bunch of small applications, getting them to interoperate and communicate with each other is not particularly easy, not easy to get things to share data This is a a long-time complaint about iOS. Presumably iOS 6 will address this in some way. Uh, It's not like Unix where you have a bunch of simple, single-purpose tools that all work together. Uh, Because it's very difficult to make individual applications work together because they're sandboxed. They don't have a good way to share data. There's no shared location for documents. So if that's Apple's plan, they're executing it poorly. They are getting simpler, single-serving apps. They're not getting the benefits of them working together. God, this goes on forever. I have more. Do you want to do a sponsor before I go on, on with this?
0: Yeah, you know, we probably should. It's about that time. 40 minutes in. We'll do our 20-minute sponsor break now. It's Harvest. Painless time tracking. Talked about these guys before. They're back, uh, and uh, they're, they're just as awesome. We use these guys uh, to, for all of our time tracking stuff. And they really are great. And the main thing, the main word I've been emphasizing when you think of these guys is painless. They make time tracking painless because nobody likes to do it. Nobody wants to track their time. But you want to be fair about it. Whether you're an an employer who has people reporting time for you or whether you're an employee or somebody who has to bill their clients, this is a great solution for doing those things and more. I'll give an example. And this is the angle I haven't really talked about that much, but I have people who work for me. When I want to track their time, I give them an account on my harvest setup. They go in. They track their time. I create a project. I create the billable hours. I can keep track of everything. And then I know at any given time exactly what the people have been working on, how much time they've spent on it, and how much that's going to cost me. And from their side, they know what they're billing for. And there are tons of great apps that Harvest has made to make this even easier. There's the iPhone app. You put that on your iPhone. You can track time right there. All connects to the website. Android app for that too? Sure. Of course, their main uh, interface has always been via the web. Now they've got a new native Mac app, Harvest for Mac. I've told you about this before, but it's really smart. You start working on something, you get interrupted, you have to take a phone call, you go downstairs to lunch, whatever it is, and you realize, oh, I left that thing running. I I can't bill for that 30 minutes while I was gone. The app's smart. It knows you've been idle. Same way your iChat client knows you've been idle. And subtract that time and not wrongfully bill it to your customer. Tons of great stuff like that. They've thought of everything. So all of this is you get a free 30-day trial with it. So go to getharvest.com slash five by five. That's where you go to sign up. After your trial period's up 30 days later, you want to keep using it? You want to sign up? Excellent. Do it. Use the code 5 by 5 at checkout, and you get 50% off your first month. Not bad. So go check it out. Getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 50% off, huh? 50% off. It's a big percent. Yeah. That's almost it, half.
1: Almost. Continuing. this, So I left this one for last, this big feedback, because I think it sums up a lot of the issues we just talked about. This is from Adam Drew, and I think it just came in just before the show. He says, the way I see it, Apple is trying to reshape the ISV slash developer world. Whenever I see ISV, I think this is a PC guy because that's what they call indie developers over on the PC side, independent software vendor. Uh, Reshaping the ISV slash developer world to be more customer-centric. Fact is, the old system is very good for developers, but not very good for customers. It leads to large, expensive software products that are slow to change, slow to evolve, and are hard to use. Uh, The old model of high initial price and medium to high upgrade price encourages developers to write and curate large decades-old software like Pro Tools, MS Office, and Photoshop. Uh, That's true. Uh, I'm not quite sure I agree with his... Well, I'll continue reading here. Uh, He's saying they're priced far too high for individuals. They're slow to innovate, slow to adapt to changes, and are outclassed by smaller, more nimble projects like GarageBand, iLife, and Pixelmator. They're older than things like GarageBand, iLife, and Pixelmator. But when I think about something like Photoshop in particular... Here it's old because it's been around forever. Photoshop 1.0 is like I don't know, the early 90s, or late 80s. It's really old application. But compare Photoshop 1.0 to Photoshop CS6. Like you, the fact that they both are called Photoshop and you might see some common tools in the palette is the only thing really joining those things together. They are worlds apart. I don't think the the idea that like Photoshop can make the 1.0 and They just have to provide free upgrades for that forever or they have to produce Photoshop 2.0 and make people buy it as a separate product and deal with the confusion that's entailed with having both those things available at the same time and so on and so forth. If you can't build a company around like building up expertise, getting the best image processing software developers that you can hire and building a company around making an awesome image or application and providing paid upgrades to it, that's what makes you get from 1.0 to CS6. I don't know if you can get from 1.0 to CSX if every time you want to add add a major feature, like, oh, I don't know, adding layers in Photoshop 3 or something or whatever version that came out in, do you have to say, okay, well, uh, we're just going to put an additional product up called Photoshop 3, uh, but Photoshop 2 is available. When you search for Photoshop on the store, we hope that Apple will sort them correctly, and we hope you won't accidentally buy Photoshop 2 and then be upset and demand a refund because we have to pay for the 30% on the refunds, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a mess there, and the I, I like the idea of software products evolving over years and years and decades and decades and getting better because it allows the company making them to, to specialize and to hire the best kind of developers for that kind of application. I don't think you arrive at CS6 you know, just by a company other than Adobe saying, oh, we're going to make something that's better than Photoshop. We're going to make something that's better than Photoshop CS6, and we're just going to come with it, out with it out of the blue. Even Pixelmator, which owes a lot to Photoshop, uh, didn't come out of the blue. It's had several major versions. It just so happens that the Mac App Store came along like kind of in the middle of its life and it just made the Mac App Store version like a paid upgrade, you know. It's not a paid upgrade. It's like, well, you had the old version before the Mac App Store existed. Well, now the Mac App Store exists, so buy our version. But can Pixelmator continue to rev its application so that Pixelmator, you know, 10, 20 years from now is to Pixelmator 1.0 as Photoshop 1.0 is to Photoshop CS6. I don't know if they can sustain that kind of development. And I don't think that kind of development is necessarily bad. Uh, The idea that it makes, that they're slow to evolve and hard to use. Uh, Any legacy code base has problems. Like it took, you know, Adobe had those dark years where it was, hadn't gone, it was still carbon and they didn't want to go cocoa and they had all these, these problems with it. Right. You know, I look at the endpoints and I say, I don't know if they're any slower to evolve than anybody else. It's CS6 compared to like Photoshop CS. If you look at any other application in that same time span, do you see a similar uh, amount of improvement there? Because uh, maybe people will say that, well, Photoshop was so hideous that that's why we like it so much better now, that it was so slow and it had so many bugs and it was all gross and now they've gotten rid of those and we're just so happy uh, that it's better. But I think... That type of change is funded by the ability to get upgrade fees from people. Uh, Many people in the chat room are saying that it's totally possible for Pixelmator to follow the same path and do it even better. But they're just a younger company. It's like, I mean, iLife is a good example. The current version of iLife compared to the first version of iLife, there's a tremendous difference there. Now, obviously, Apple is subsidizing iLife with its hardware sales and giving it away for free. uh, And they don't have upgrade pricing. If you want the new version of iLife, you buy it outright. Uh, So that, I think, is a bad example but if they were an independent software company and had they had to develop iLife and sell it on its own, they could not sell it for the price they sell it. Like, it's subsidized. It's subsidized software. So I don't think it's fair to compare iLife to something like Photoshop or Word and say, see, uh, Apple can do it. Apple's got massive profits from its hardware to, to dump into iLife and GarageBand and all that other stuff that's out there. Uh, so he continues. Instead of coming up with new apps that are focused and streamlined when a new use case prevents itself, these developers and many others find a way to cram features into their flagship flagship prop. This is bad for consumers because it keeps prices artificially high and software bloated and confusing. Many people wanted me to talk about iTunes, but if you want to talk about cramming features into a flagship product instead of making a new product, iTunes would be a great example there. And that's free for everybody and never costs any money. Uh, So I don't think that practice is solved by a new business model. People do that because... That's something that they like to do and it upsets us. But it happens even in free software that has nothing to do with upgrade pricing or anything. You know, iTunes is the best example of that. But but again, this is a real phenomenon in big applications. And I used it last time, of like adding every possible button to the Word toolbar, making Word this big monster application. Every year, you got to think of something else to add to Word. And then you come up with the ribbon. You're like, oh, let's rearrange all the buttons and make it totally different and let's revise it. But it, it becomes like a treadmill where this is your cash cow and you have to find some way to make a new version. That is the anti-pattern of Long-term software, but I think getting saying therefore we have to get rid of that model is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Probably not the best idea.
0: Let's see what else we've got here. Photoshop 1.0 released in 1990 for Macintosh exclusively.
1: There you go. Uh, so Andrew says I find it likely that Apple knows exactly what they're doing. They're telling the Adobe's, Microsoft's, and digit designs of the world that things are different now. Price your apps so regular people can buy them and make them more focused and coherent, or go elsewhere. I think that's a great thing. I've never even considered purchasing Photoshop due to the obviously over-the-top price, but I gladly purchase Pixelmator. I'll never buy Pro Tools, but I love GarageBand. I'll never buy Microsoft Office, but I own Pages and Numbers. Uh, If you don't need a big, powerful application and you can get by with a lesser one, then of course you like lower pricing, but it doesn't mean that some people don't. If you told everyone who's using Photoshop now uh, that Photoshop is gone, and from now on you have to use some alternative that's uh, half the price, of which there are many. Not that these are bad applications, but... There's kind of a reason that Photoshop has most of the features in it that it has. And if you told all the people in the world using Photoshop right now that they have to use Pixelmator, many of them would have extreme difficulty getting their jobs done, and not just because they don't know how a Pixelmator works. It just doesn't have all the features of Photoshop. If Pixelmator had all the features of Photoshop, I don't think it would. It could be the same price. Because you need many, many more developers. Even if one of the features is runs on a platform other than a Mac OS X. You know? So, I... I don't think that's an apples to apples comparison. I, I, I think th- that Pixelmator and applications like Acorn and stuff are filling a role that wasn't filled by Photoshop, that was never arguably filled by Photoshop, which is an application for someone who's not a professional graphic designer who just wants to do some graphic stuff. And that's a good role for that, but it doesn't mean that applications like Photoshop ha- no longer have a purpose in this new world, and therefore we don't care what happens to them, and they could just go away for all we care. And Pixelmator is the new way to go. It's just a different type of application. It's not... It's it's not... Uh, they're not filling the same role for the same people. Um, so pricing issues aside. Oh, actually, I should finish up this thing because he has a conclusion here. He says the developers need to stop thinking about what will quickly net them the most sales and start thinking about what will best serve customers. The sales will follow. I think Apple's success has proven that. I don't think their de- developers are trying to net a quick profit. If they were trying to do that. They'd be totally on board with making the single serving act that takes six months to develop. So you cash in on it and you move on to the next thing. And you just abandon it. It's Maybe it'll get bug fix upgrades, but that's it. It'll never get significantly better. That's that's the opposite of what, you know, that's that's if they just wanted to get a quick buck, they'd be all on board with that. But they don't want to do that. They want to make version one of their app and then see the obvious features that need to be added for version two and accept feedback from people and whatever and make an awesome version two. And they want to spend like a year or six months making an awesome version two. And at the end of that, they don't want to have to rely on hockey stick growth of the platform to give them any money. They want to be able to get, they don't, why should the customers get that version for free? This is something that lots of people, I guess, who aren't nerds or developers, you know, like they think it's the same product. They think, well, I bought this product and now people should toil endlessly as their full-time job to improve this product for me forever for free. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't work. Like when I buy a, a 2002 Honda Civic, I don't get the 2003 Honda Civic for free. I don't get to bring my Civic in and have them... <laughs> retrofit it and upgrade it to, you know, oh, but I just bought a 2002 Civic and then the 2003s came out. Can I get the 2003 Civic? You're not entitled to free updates forever. And it doesn't matter that it's not a physical product. Someone is working full-time as their job to make new versions of this product. How can they work that way if they can't get any money? Like, you're not entitled to their future work forever just because it all is under the umbrella of a particular name, right? And, And I think... Many people think that's the way it is with applications where you buy an app on your iPhone and you got a little icon on there and you should be entitled to the future work of all people working on anything that uses that icon for the rest of your life. That's just not how it works, right? That's uh, not a sustainable business model. So unless you're going with the Android thing where everything is ad-supported or whatever. So pricing aside, even ignoring the pricing thing of how to get more money from those people, you still have the confusion issue where... If you just put up a new version you, and you have multiple versions in the store, you have the danger of people finding the wrong version or you have to rely on Apple sorting or them being smart. And then if they get refunds, you're out the 30%, which you don't get back. Uh, but if you only have one version on the store, you yank the old version and you can't provide bug fixes. Uh, and there's many possible solutions to this. Many people wrote in like, oh, all Apple needs to do is X and all Apple needs to do is Y. And then there won't be confusion and they won't have any problems. And if they buy the wrong one, this won't help. Yes, there are Many, many things Apple could do to fix this. Many obvious, simple things they can do. Anyone can come up with a simple scheme whereby all these problems are eliminated. But Apple hasn't done any of those things. And the problem for developers and consumers, I think, is we don't know which one of those things Apple is likely to do. So you can't say, okay, we have to plan future development. Do we make version 2 of this product and spend an entire year working on it knowing full well that the only way we can get any money for version 2 of this product is by selling it to people who didn't buy version 1? Do we make version two and put it on the store? Knowing full well that version one could be there alongside it. Do we yank version one? Do we assume Apple's going to provide some way to help us? Which ways will they provide? Will they let it, you know, it's all just guesswork. Everyone's in the dark. How do you plan your business on that? And so it it creates uncertainty and fear. And the safest thing to do is say, we're not going to work on version two of this product. We're going to make a brand new product that no one has bought yet, that everyone who buys will get money from. And we'll just put that other product in maintenance mode. That's what Apple, That's the shape Apple is turning this business into, intentionally or not, and I think that's a bad, a bad shape. I like developers to provide major upgrades to versions of my applications, because many applications I buy and I say, boy, this is a great version one, version two will be even better. I, I want the people to be able to make me a version two, and I'm willing to pay some additional money for that version two, I don't feel entitled to it because I got a version one. Uh, so uncertainty about what Apple will do here is is bad. Uncertainty in most markets is bad. One of the suggestions people come up with was subscription. Instead of paying for a piece of software and quote-unquote owning it, even though you have like a license to use it or whatever, how about doing a subscription thing where you pay some fee over some period of time? A monthly fee, a weekly fee, a yearly fee, which presumably will be cheaper than the cost of buying the thing outright... And it doesn't that fund future developments. Then you could be like on the train of like, as long as I keep paying the, paying the subscription free, I get a, every new version of Photoshop that comes out or whatever. Uh, Microsoft tried doing this, I think in the late 90s was where they were big on it. Like Microsoft Office, you won't be able to buy it. It'll be a subscription. And enterprises like subscriptions because they get really big volume discounts. And it's really easy to convince the guy in charge of enterprise purchasing, you know, pass this fee every year. And you get access to and they give you this huge laundry list of like everything Microsoft makes and all of our development tools and all of our software and, and our super duper fancy version of Office and unlimited seat license to Windows NT, blah, 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 you know, those are really easy to sell to enterprises because they, they think they're getting a big deal when in reality the people in their company use like two applications and three features in those two applications. And That would have been cheaper just buying individual seats for them. But anyway, that's a, I don't want to get into the enterprise issue. Uh but for apps with a purchase price that's so low, like already in both stores, the purchase prices are really slow. Subscriptions don't really make much sense for an individual user. Uh, some companies have them now. Like I believe you can rent or whatever you want to call it. Adobe Photoshop, for example, Adobe will sell you. You know, oh, don't buy Photoshop outright. Just pay us some fee over a certain period of time, and as long as you keep paying that fee, you can use the thing. And then when you stop paying, you you don't get to use it anymore. But I think if you if you plan to use Photoshop, like, as long as it's useful, like, if you buy a Photoshop CS6, how long do you think that application would be useful? Like, how long will it be until Macs can't even run that anymore or the Mac that you're running it on, like, falls apart or breaks and you can't get it fixed? Like, the useful light time of a version of Photoshop is pretty darn long. Certainly, you could just keep using it until the hardware runs on breaks. Like, you talked about those guys who have the Mac SEs or whatever running HyperCard in some office and you know or some uh, desktop publishing place, and if it still works... You know, it still works. Like so you, you can just use it on the original hardware as it was for a long time as a tool. Uh, but even if you keep upgrading your hardware, that software has a very long useful lifetime. Like right up until I upgraded to Lion, I was using a, fo- a copy of Photoshop CS because that's the last one I had, and it was PowerPC. But that, I used that for years and years. Ten years, I think I used Photoshop CS, and you know, until oh, was, you know, time moves on. I could have kept my PowerPC Mac out and and continued to use Photoshop CS. But now I can no longer use it because Rosetta is gone. And what a bummer, right? But I got 10 years of use out of that. Well, if I had been paying Adobe subscription rates, it would have been very foolish for me to pay those subscription rates for 10 years. It would have been much cheaper to buy it up front. So unless you plan on using Photoshop for only a year and then never using it again, subscriptions probably don't make sense at, at that kind of pricing. And for iOS apps, where it's like 99 cents, what is the subscription fee for a 99 cents or even a $5 app? Well, you can buy the whole app for $5 or give us 10 cents a month. You know, for five years, like it just gets kind of silly. Even for a twenty dollar app, it's like just just buy the app. So I don't. I don't see subscriptions as a way to go. I think people do like buying things, and I think that's how it will have to be sorted out. With the exception, obviously, of like magazine subscriptions or something where there's content where you're not really buying an application, you're buying the content, and the content is always new and is a never ending stream of it. All right, and here is... Oh, he gave me a pronunciation guide, so I need to get this one right. You always they always like that when we get those. I do, but now I feel extra pressure. Max Schwanekamp. Hope I got that right. Once again, this is like this is the, the mandatory prefix for all these emails. One thing that Marco and Syracuse seem to be skipping over, it's always about me and Marco missing things. Why are we a unit here? We have individual shows. You can address us individually. Anyway. Uh is that the old-school model of buying software and then paying upgrades has long been an object of scorn for most people not involved in software development. It has always been effectively a subscription model, and the worst kind. You pay for software, and then some unknown time down the road, you'll be effectively forced to pay for it again, albeit at a discount. If you don't pay for the upgrade, your software will be held hostage because you know that very soon your software will be obsolete and useless. If you do pay for the upgrade, regardless of the actual cost in dollars, it's a negative experience in terms of wasted time, hassle, etc. This is like the opposite of what I just said. Like this, The reality this person is describing is the opposite. What he's describing, I think, is a situation where if people can't get money from from upgrades, then they will abandon you and your software will become useless. But in the old model, your software does not become useless. First of all, you don't have to upgrade because the old version of your software should continue to get bug fixed and, you know, it, and kept up to date for a reasonable period of time. And why can a developer afford to do that? Because they're making their money by selling upgrade fees to the next version so they can afford to give you minor bug fixed versions to keep your old version running. Second, they don't owe you anything after you buy it, like, other than bug fixes on the hardware that's running on. Don't upgrade your Mac. Keep that, that version of the operating system, that version of your hardware, that version of the software. will continue to work until it breaks and you can't get parts to fix it, right? Again, with the car thing, when I get a new car and they come up with a new version of a car that has, like, variable valve timing and lift, I don't get that for free. I don't get a back upgrade or my you know, I use my car. My car still drives me to work. It's still it's not as good as the new car, but I don't get the new version for free and they have no responsibility to keep me going on that train. Your stuff works the way it is. You don't when you pay for it, you're not paying for all future work or even any future work from that person. In fact, it could be argued in the old days before the internet, you didn't even get bug fixes for free. You bought it once, it came on floppy disk, you put it on your computer, and that's what you got. And if you ever got anything else from that person without having to pay for it again, it was like a miracle. Not that I'm saying that's the best model, but if you get software that works, you shouldn't feel like you you don't need to upgrade and you're not owed upgrades. But the model of people being able to get incremental revenue for upgrades funds their ability to keep you supported for a longer period of time. And I think if you take that away, you will be abandoned much sooner. Your software will become obsolete and useless much faster because the developers simply can't afford to support you. Like I said, Photoshop CS, I think I used for more than a decade. And the only reason I can't use it now is because upgraded the line if i had still run snow leopard i could still use that piece of software a decade worth of use out of whatever it was a couple hundred dollars and i don't remember how much it cost back in 1990 something right that is a long useful life for a piece of software and i don't think there were even any point updates to it. it just you know kept running that it doesn't become obsolete in a second you're not held hostage these are the things that will happen i think if developers can't make money off upgrade revenue. Not the things that happen now. And that's it's such a warped view of the way software works now that maybe it feels that way to non-technical people that you're forced some unknown time down the road to, to, to pay for it again. Why would you pay for it again? You've already got it. Oh, you want the new thing because it's better than what you have now because they made this awesome new thing and they worked for a year, their entire team, making this new thing and you're forced to pay for it to get that again? Well, you're not forced. The thing you have still works the way it did. You know, And if you don't pay for the offer, your software will be held hostage and soon will be obsolete. So they're going to come into your house and break your computer with a (laughs) hammer? It still works the way it did before the new version (laughs) came out. It still works fine. They're not breaking it. Uh, I I don't understand that mindset at all. I don't know if it's an entitlement mindset, a frustration with upgrades because he is true that upgrading is a hassle in terms of, you know, I upgraded all my crap doesn't work and people get burned by that, but they still feel like I got to have the latest thing. I got to upgrade. Like maybe that's the sickness. The idea that
0: there's something newer out there, and they're not—they're not in on it. Yeah, you got to have it. Like, and the, and it, like, even they, if what they have, like you're saying, works perfectly for them for their needs. Yeah, they have it; it's working. There's something new out there, but. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's better.
1: It's like it's the same. Whatever the psychological sickness or condition is, where you like the the man blames the woman for dressing for dressing uh, uh, provocatively. Oh, she's distracting me. She's tempting me with this with her beauty, and I can't resist these new software. I, I blame them. But it's not you know it's not my fault for choosing that to deciding that I have to upgrade. They made an awesome new version. How can I resist? You know, the the temptress brings me over, and I have to, I have to upgrade to the. You don't have to upgrade. If what you have works fine, stick with it. And you can't blame the developers for making this awesome, tempting new thing. Uh, so there's a second part of this one. It says, has uh, a couple of alternatives. Says, uh, use in-app purchase to unlock new, new features or some virtual currency like coins, like many of the free iOS games, to choose some range of features or break the app up into smaller pieces and sell them as con- components that the customer can pick and choose from based on their needs. All these p- are potentially better than the old school model or at least no worse. I can think of many reasons why they would be worse. Never mind that most of them aren't even possible because it would be discussed. If you're going to unlock features that are already there, the features have to already be there. And, and if you, you know, you have to after three years of that, what does your application look like? Does it have is it tire- three entirely different applications with different sets of features that get unlocked to produce what is effectively the same as Photoshop CS2, 3 and 4 all within a single executable? That's a debugging and support nightmare, and I don't think that's a sustainable model at all. And selling in individual components that work together, again, not particularly easy on iOS or on Mac OS X with the new sandboxing rules. And that model doesn't... It's it's even more confusing for customers, and uh, software developers have shown that they're not particularly good at implementing that, like the OpenDoc type of model where you mix and match these components. It's probably also a QA nightmare. So... I hope I got Max's last name right, but I disagree strongly with his, his view of what the, what the existing software model is like. I, again, I agree on the whole idea that it does lead to applications like Microsoft Word and companies built around them where they're just iterating for the sake of iterating trying to make money. That is something that needs to be addressed, but I, I don't think you get rid of it entirely because it also leads you to the, the best of the best applications we have are the ones that are developed over many, many years and refined and, and uh, been able to give it. BB Edit is a great example. You know, BB it, even though it kind of looks like a window full of text just like it did in 1992 it's, it, I doubt there are many lines of code that are shared with the original version of that application and how were they able to afford to continuously develop an application for 20 years it was their 20th anniversary recently because every time they made a new version and worked on a year or two on it, they got money from both existing customers and new customers if they didn't, they wouldn't be around anymore and so what would we be using instead, I guess we'd be using Emacs or something
0: Let's do a second sponsor while you recover. Good idea. Second sponsor is Everyme. Go to everyme.com slash download to download this while I'm describing it because it's pretty cool. Uh, This is the thing. It just launched. Just came out Tuesday a couple days ago. And they came up with this app. This is an iOS app. They came up with it to address a problem with friending on social networks. And the, the problem that they identified is you're either sharing everything with everybody or you're sharing nothing. And there really isn't an in-between. And that's the problem. If, if you make somebody your friend on one of these uh, social networks, then they get to pretty much see everything that you do. And that doesn't always work. What if it's something personal? What if it's something you don't want your work people to see? Or you, you don't want your family to see? Who knows? Well, they address this. They let you create friends on, social, on, on their social network based on who they are in real life you create these circles. You create one for your family, you create one for your coworkers, one for your best friends, one for your significant other, whatever it is. Uh, you, you can propagate these if you choose from your address book. You can enter them in, whatever it is that you want to do. You create real life circles and they mirror the real way that you share things in the real world. And it's very, very easy to use. It's an elegant, awesome uh, app. And the whole purpose of it, again, is to mirror the way that you share things in real life. So they're totally private. You can enjoy the peace of mind that comes with that. And they create these things called magic circles. If you don't want to go through and do it manually, somebody asked me, well, what if, what if I don't want to like go and create for, you can have, it'll figure out circles based on the information that you give it anyway it's a very cool app it's a very very new way to think about sharing things and this new approach i think is going to catch on because more and more people are worried about their privacy worried about who can see what check this out everyme.com slash download it's where you go to get it i'll we'll have a link in the show notes also and uh check it out i think you'll like it
1: if I wanna to get to readability, I gotta to go to it now. So I gotta believe I'm believe not, I'm gonna leave the Mac upgrade topic, even though there's more in these notes and I gotta to get the to readability. All right, let's hear the readability. Readability and middlemen. Many people wanted to write in about this and one yeah, thing they, that a lot
0: in- of people didn't like your stance on middlemen because they felt it was inconsistent that Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And that's I had in my notes a particular middleman that I wanted to talk about, which many listeners to their credit brought up because they're paying attention. Uh, and that middleman is the App Store, which I think I briefly mentioned, but now I want to talk about a bit more, just like in general talking about the topic of middlemen. So what I said in the readability episode was I didn't like the idea of adding a middleman. Uh, I think things get better when you either eliminate middlemen or replace existing middleman with a better one that's more efficient or more hungry for or more customer-focused or not a monopoly or whatever. And so many people brought up the App Store, so we'll talk about the App Store as a middleman. Um, now first, Apple didn't, add a middleman the app store replaced either one middleman or sometimes several uh so examples of middlemen that it could replace is like if you were selling your software in a store like a retail store apple replaced that middleman so you took away best buy and you put an apple right if you were uh selling things through your website uh the app store replaced like your payment processor Right, And sometimes, if you were selling in both locations, the App Store replaced both the retailers that you used to have a relationship with and your payment processors for your direct sale. So it's possible that the App Store could replace multiple middlemen for some people, just one middleman for another. But certainly, it wasn't adding one. Like, Best Buy and your credit card payment processor and Apple aren't all in the loop. Right? So they didn't add a middleman. Uh, now, the App Store's cut... It's much bigger than the cut of many of the middlemen that it replaced. So, for example, if you were an independent Mac dev and you're using a payment processor, there's no way your online payment processor was was taking 30% cut of your revenues. Like, way smaller than that, right? So, even though Apple may have just been replacing a middleman, uh, they were dry, They were not like better in that regard to the developer, taking a much bigger cut of your money than than your existing payment processor was. Maybe actually a lesser cut than your re- the retailer, because if you were selling box software, that's just you get shafted on that, like. The people who actually sold box Mac software, by the time that goes through all of the various layers of distributors and middlemen and becomes a box and they sell it, how much money you get out of that is way less than 70%. So it depends on where you were coming from, Apple could have been a much worse middleman than the one to replace for you or a much better one or somewhere in the middle. Uh, existing middlemen were usually a lot less draconian about the product itself. so. Your payment processor doesn't care what the hell you're selling, unless maybe you're selling porn or some sort of gambling thing, because you know, they don't like that. But your payment processor doesn't care if your application is defaming a political figure. You know, your payment processor doesn't care if what you're selling uh, duplicates the functionality in an application that Apple makes, you know, it contains curse words or, you know, they don't care. And retailers... Again, a little might be a little bit more draconian than just a payment processor. But say, oh, well, we don't want to carry that in Best Buy because it's not part of our image or whatever. But certainly less picky than Apple, where it's like, oh, we don't like the APIs you're using. Pfft, Best Buy doesn't care what APIs you're using. So there's another case where Apple is probably uh, more restrictive and a worse experience for the developer than the middleman it was replacing. Uh, so the other things that the App Store did it took away the direct relationship between software vendors and their customers. Nope. Those aren't your customers anymore. No, those are Apple's customers. It exposed, it imposed extremely strict and pretty much arbitrary rules on the content of the apps. We're going to decide whether your application can be in the store based on us looking at it and making a decision. And we'll try to give you a list of rules and try to give you a hint, but those rules change all the time and God knows what they're going to be. We decide, uh, there's policies in the App Store that excluded not just individual applications, but entire classes of applications. For example, backup software, which needs to read every file on your disk. Well, you need administrator privileges for that. And the Mac App Store says, nope, no admin privileges. Uh, and by the way, you're going to need to be sandbox. So whole categories of software, if that was this category of software you were in, you can't even participate in this new middleman man because you're not allowed in at all. And again, certainly things like your payment processor would not eliminate backup software by, because of some arbitrary decision. They just want to cut of your, you know, your payment transactions. Uh, and th- perhaps the worst one, this new middleman at the App Store, it has its own software and it favors its own software over your software. So no competing with anything that Apple makes. If they said, no, actually, we prefer it to be the only application that even looks vaguely like this on the store, so we're rejecting yours. That was one of the first times that I just totally flipped the switch on, on the App Store. It was like years and years ago when like at the iOS App Store when they, Publicly said that they rejected an application because it duplicated some functionality the Apple provided. I was like, "Oh, that's it. This is BS. This is totally BS. This App Store is BS." Because it, up to that point, I was like, I was willing to entertain the idea of the App Store because I thought it could be okay. But you know, once they did that, once they've totally been filed up into the, you know, so that's the way it's going to be. Okay, I get it now. And that's like, you know, that's like if. Best Buy also had its own software-making firm and they didn't want to carry Microsoft Word because they sold their own word processor. So they wouldn't carry Microsoft Word back in the retail days or egghead software, or whatever you want to do. Uh, so, yeah, and, and these rules change all the time. Like, oh, can I make something that competes with iTunes? Can I make an app that does podcasts? Well, now you can do that, but also don't make something that looks like a dialer. But actually, that looks kind of like an interface that you know, that looks like the program switcher that's included in macOS 10. Even though we copied it from your app originally, we now are not going to allow your app in the store. There was a follow-up item I had for ages about that. That just pisses me off to no end. Uh, what was that one? I, I wish I still had it in my notes. Quickster or quick switch? Not quickster. Quick switch or something like that. It looked like the application switcher. Oh yeah, I know introduced. the one you mean.
0: I'm trying to remember it too. Somebody in the chat room, I'm sure, remembers what this thing was called. I was sworn, I had that in my notes. I'm actually
1: going to try. to... I, I wanted to do a whole show on that because that pissed me off so much. It's like. Apple effectively copied a third-party application with the look and feel. And we don't know if they even saw this third-party application. But the bottom line is the application came out first. Apple came out second. It looked just like that other one. And then when the Mac App Store came around, they wouldn't allow that app in the store because they said it looks too much like the application that we built into the operating system. <laughs> right. It was just total BS. Light, like, light
0: Switch? Is that the name of it? <sighs> no, Scooter no, no. Computer switch. thinks it's Light Switch.
1: Quick pick. Quick pick pulled from the App Store. Yeah, this is a post from... August 2011, I will add to the show notes. Yeah, so that that is total BS and terrible. Terrible, terrible. So this, you know, this is what the App Store middleman is doing. Even though it was not adding a middleman, it was replacing a middleman, but replacing them in ways that had many disadvantages compared to the middleman it was replacing, right? And yet, and yet, the App Store, both in iOS and on the Mac side, is grudgingly tolerated by the same developers who are getting shafted by all the things that I just listed there. Right? And never mind, by the way, taking thirty percent of their money. You know, why, why is that? How? Why is the app store tolerated? This was the main like thing. Like, oh, so you don't like middlemen, but everyone seems to be okay with the app store. Or I don't hear you complaining about the app store. Uh, first, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I think you have heard me complain about the app store. Uh, but it's true about developers. Like there was lots of complaining about the app store, and there still is lots of complaining about the app store. But People put their apps in it, don't they? Why? Why is the App Store accepted better than Readability? Why aren't like the same people who are complaining about re- Readability? It would be as if people complained about Readability, but all the people complaining about it were subscribers to Readability and giving it money every month. And all the websites complaining about Readability were nevertheless signing up with Readability to get money. That's not happening. People are complaining, and as far as I can tell... Very few people, customers or readers, are signed up with readability. Like it's not They don't have millions of users and they're not like on a hockey stick growth type of thing, uh, as far as I know. And certainly the publishers are not clamoring to sign up with readability and just like everyone has to sign up with it while at the same time complaining. And that's what happened on the App Store. Everybody complained about it, but every developer, if they could get in the store, got in. And some people would complain about the App Store and then also complain that they couldn't get into this thing that they hate. You know, food here is terrible and the portions are so small. Like, it was, that's the way it was going with the App Store and still is. So why is that? What makes readability different than the App Store? Well, the App Store, the, the key thing that the App Store had going, well, several key things. One, one is that it replaced many, many separate middlemen with a single very popular one. So even though it was like, oh, okay, for this person, we replace your payment processor. And for this person, we replace your retailer. And for this person, we replace your different payment processor. Even though for any individual developer, or customer for that matter, it only replaced one or two middlemen, collectively, It said all those different middlemen because there are many payment processors, many retailers, many different websites to go through and to buy stuff. It replaced all of them with one extremely popular visible middleman. So from the consumer's perspective, that's good because you don't have to look at 20 different places to find, is there any cool new software I can buy? Like you just go to this one place that everyone knows about because it's very popular because they're a big company and everything, right? And for the developers, it replaced each individual developers need to deal with a payment processor, to deal with a retailer, to deal with whatever they're dealing with. Now, everybody's dealing with the same middle person and it takes some of the guesswork out of, oh, do I have the best payment processor? Is this payment processor annoying? Do I need to change to a different one? You know, so it coalesced many different middlemen. I don't think readability does that because they're kind of trying to be a new thing and they're just not as popular as they're not as visible as Apple is, and their service is not as popular as the App Store became because they don't have the kind of visibility. They don't have the time to say, everybody who's reading the web, first of all, everybody doesn't even use the old version of readability. They just reformats the thing. It tends to be kind of a geek, geek type of feature. It's not like they're Microsoft or Google or someone with the leverage to say, everybody who reads the web, you're all going to be readability customers. And or, most of you are going to be, and the less you know about computers, the more likely you are to be a readability customer. We're going to unify the world of getting payment for reading things on the web by reformatting pages. They haven't done that. Uh, iTunes also greatly reduced the friction to buying things because they had existing iTunes accounts from that little music thing they did a couple years ago with credit cards, with people who already have shown that they're completely willing and able to click a button and buy stuff. So Apple was bringing with it literally millions of customers ready to buy with a single click. Readability is not bringing that. They don't have an existing database the size of the iTunes Music Store coming over to, okay, we've already got all these people and all their credit cards and an application that they all have installed and have shown that they're willing to click on and buy stuff. We're bringing that to bear on reading websites. They're not. They're not bringing that. Uh, Apple also brought national TV ads. Tremendous exposure. Featured placement in this store that everyone's going to look at. Featured placement in the operating system that millions of people use, you know. Uh, featured placement on the phones that millions of people are going to buy. Apple was bringing with it big, big, big guns to counteract all the crap that I just listed that's terrible that the App Store does. All this this good stuff, this counterbalancing good stuff, leads to increased sales, both potential increased sales, like look at all the people I could sell to, and actual increased sale. And all that bad stuff, you choke it down once those checks start coming in, Right. If, if this was the deal with readability, if it's like, boy, this readability, like they're taking money on people's behalf and they don't like it and don't like it, they're adding this middleman layer. But man, I signed up for readability and now the income from readability is dwarfing my income from advertisers. That they would be comparable to the App Store if that happened. People would still be complaining about them, but suddenly you've got something there. Like, well, yeah, everything that I said about them is bad. It's still bad. But man, look at the size of this check. Look at what they're bringing to bear. Look at what they brought to my site. They're bringing the customers. They're bringing the money. They're they're bringing the audience. That's what the App Store has brought. And that's why iOS developers and Mac developers, in general, probably have a net positive attitude about the App Store despite their complaints because they're, they're bringing the customers. They're bringing the money. Readability is not bringing that. So all we're left with is a situation where they want to insert themselves as a middleman and they're not bringing those benefits that the App Store, which I think is a much worse middleman, brought along to counterbalance all the bad things that it does. Uh, the biggest one from consumer's perspective is the upbring that unifying thing. I think unification is really really important. I think the, it's the biggest advantage of the App Store. That it's this one well-known place to go to find software and that was such a an icebreaker, such a bottleneck in the old world of like, how do you find software? If you're not a nerd, how the hell do you know where to find software? You're just like, I'm just on the internet and I type into Google software, Mac, something, I end up on a site that gives me a virus. You know, you go to the app store, it's the top item in there, one of the top items in the Apple menu, you know, on your phone, it's right there on your phone on the home screen. You just press it with your thumb and you can buy stuff. That was tremendous. And readability has nothing compared to that. And then there's the customers. So... That, I think, is the major, major difference in the App Store. And and in case you haven't noticed, I am not a fan of the App Store or its policies or any of those things. But I recognize the vast advantages that it does bring. I am a fan of making it easier to buy software, making it easier to install and uninstall software, because I think that leads to more people buying software, more software developers being able to develop software. It's just once they become that linchpin in the business, all the bad things they do become way worse. That's why I'm complaining about them reshaping the business in a way I think is not advantageous to certain kinds of applications because they're so powerful because of all those other things. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. So what else do I have on this? My four-year-old says that a lot. Yeah. So I said that readability is not bringing vastly increased exposure. This is all setting aside. I'm still setting aside the issue of taking money on other people's behalf and everything. Uh, less friction in receiving money. Maybe there's less friction because you could say there's, there's infinite friction now because most sites don't take money directly from customers and so if readability can get you some money that's, that's better than not getting it all but again, they don't have the millions of users with credit cards they're kind of starting from zero and trying to build up. Uh, most sites don't get money from readers, they get it from advertisers and so if readability was going to like the app store reduced friction between two existing parties There were people who wanted software and people who sold software, and the app store reduced friction between those parties to transfer the money while taking a cut. Uh, If readability wanted to do the same thing that the app store did, but do it in the world of websites, readability would be reducing friction between advertisers and websites because that's the current flow of money. That's how things get made on the web. Money flows from advertisers to the websites, and the websites produce content with the money the advertisers give them. So if readability had swooped in and said, what we're doing is, reducing friction between those two parties and making it easier for them to transfer money, maybe they would have, uh, you know, they're not doing that. They're saying, there's a party here that you're not even getting money from. Uh, it would be kind of as if the app store came in and said, we're going to make it really easy for advertisers to put their ads in applications and give money to application vendors. And and application vendors would say, well, we write software and we sell it. We don't, like our software isn't ad supported. And so wouldn't it be much better if your software was supported by advertisers and customers didn't have to buy it? We're going to make that easier. In fact, we're collecting money right now from advertisers and we'll give it to you. And then your ads will go, you know, it's two parties that weren't that, you know, it's the reverse, obviously, on the web. But they say, well, don't you think readers should be giving you money? Wouldn't that be a better relationship directly between readers and sites without these advertisers in the middle? I kind of agree with that. But the fact is, that's not how the relationship works right now. Maybe maybe sites should get money from readers instead. But as I said last show, the advertisers are outbidding the readers. So far, readers are not willing to pay as much as advertisers, and often not willing to pay anything at all. Even the New York Times, you think anybody could get money from people would be the New York Times. Even the New York Times is having trouble figuring out, geez, how can we get even a fraction of the money we need to to sustain our business directly from readers? Even though the New York Times has always been getting some money, like with the newspaper subscriptions, on the web, they're finding it difficult. They're trying to figure out how do we pay, how do we adjust like how many articles you get for free, and how much should it cost? And even then, when you pay the New York Times, I believe you still get it filled with ads. So they're still going with the advertisers. So... Readability is fighting an uphill battle here and they are not doing things the way the App Store did. They are not bringing the advantages the App Store brought to their credit. They're also not bringing the massive disadvantages that the App Store brought but it doesn't really matter if you're not if Readability is not able to pay (laughs) to pay these content providers enough to sustain their business they're just not interested. Like wake me up Readability when you can pay the kind of money that the advertisers are paying and so it's kind of a chicken egg situation where, well, we can't do that until we get lots of readers, but readers don't want to sign on if there's not a lot of sites signed on. And then if we collect money without the site signing on, they complain, and they're, they're in a tough spot, I think. Uh, here's someone... Uh, the final thing about readability is a email from Brad Fortin, who, who is a loyal readability customer. And I think it's good to have the view of someone who likes readability. What do they like about it, and why do they like it? So he says, the way I see... Readability's business model is that I voluntarily give them $10 a month in the hopes that they'll be able to contact these content providers and distribute my money to them in proportion to how much of their content I read and enjoy. Periodically, I'll go through the list of sites I've tried to contribute to, see who isn't signed up for the service yet, and try to contact them in the hopes they'll sign up and take my money. I'm considering raising my amount to $20, and if more content providers hop on, I'm willing to go as high as $60, roughly what I'm paying my ISP. This is the money I think the sites deserve, and I think Readability proportionally distributing that money to sites for me is a wonderful idea, and I wish more sites were willing to sign up for it. That's noble, and I think that's what readability wants, but how many people do you think in the world are like Brad Fortin, who are willing to pay $60 a month? And if you divide that $60 a month amongst all the web pages, all the websites that someone reads over the course of the month, how much is that a month? And multiply that by the number of users who are willing to pay that, and see how much money exactly these websites are going to get, and then compare it to how much money advertisers are paying these websites. And again, I think you will find that the advertisers are massively outbidding the readers. And, you know, if you're running a website, and you have to find a way to sustain it, like it's similar for this for this podcast. If every reader was willing to pay ten dollars an episode for this podcast, Ooh. you would not need advertisers, nope. would you? Probably nope. not. So Probably everyone not. listening right now, if you, you can like start a separate website and say, okay, I'm willing to pay ten dollars an episode or one dollar an episode for hypercritical, go ahead and get money. Like Dan is not gonna turn down your money for the number, you know what I mean? But I think you're gonna be outbid by the advertisers. And I think people like it this way. They like getting the free content, they like it being advertiser supported. And if there was a third party trying to swoop in and say, we can get you money directly from readers, Dan would say, well, that's great and all, but if you don't give me enough money, don't give me as much money as the advertisers, I can't get rid of the advertisers. You know what I mean? And, and if you didn't talk to Dan about that and start taking money on behalf of Dan to listen to Hypercritical, I think you'd be pissed about it, and rightfully so. So this is the situation readability finds itself in. Uh, and I think it's a difficult situation, but the reality is what the reality is. If readability through force of will or advertising or whatever was able to convince more people that they should pay for content, then they will have been able to do something that many other people have not been able to do. And, uh, you know, I think we would all thank them for it. But I just don't think it's going to happen. You know? So that's readability. Didn't take too long. No, not at all. Got time for a little tiny bit on flashback, I think. What do you think?
0: Well, I think it's important to talk about it and uh you know
1: get your take on it. Yeah, for those who don't know, flashback is the name for this. I should have looked this up. Is it a virus? Is it a Trojan horse? What is the technical classification of this piece of malware uh, that is affecting the Mac?
0: Well, I guess they are calling it malware.
1: That's the umbrella term. I think, that right? is
0: the umbrella term. Um I think that's probably fine. Dri- right. Is it? Is it a drive-by attack? Is that the official? Something like that. I think drive-by attack is the... Yeah. Because it's not a Trojan horse.
1: So this is a uh, piece of malware that is reportedly affecting uh, like something that people picked like 1% of all Macs? Yes. Like 600,000 Macs or something like that? Right. Uh, and uh, Gruber talked about it in his show a little bit. And what he said... Uh, I thought it was a good point for those of us who are old. It's, we remember a time back when viruses did exist on the Mac. Uh, back in the classic Mac days. I had viruses. I have, I believe the popular one that I kept getting was the Enver virus. Lo- lowercase N, capital V-I-R. And I would disinfect myself from the Enver virus using ResEdit and the delete key. So that's that's old school. Uh, so viruses existed back, way back in the old days when Macs were black and white and had mono, you know, monochrome, tiny 9-inch screens and stuff like that. And as Gruber pointed out, uh, the viruses spread back then through floppy disks because there, there was no internet, kids. You know, There were BBSs and there were modems, if you were lucky, but even the Mac had not great support for those. But generally, they, they, uh, you got a virus because you went to a Mac user group meeting that was a mug. That's what we called them back in the day. They don't still and- call them mugs? That's what they were called. I don't no, know. No, they still, don't still call them monks. I don't think they exist anymore because we have the internet now. But you'd go to a meeting with a bunch of old cranky people, and you would exchange floppy disks, and you would bring the floppy disks home, usually filled with either shareware software or pirated commercial software or something. And half of them had viruses on them, and when you put them into your computer, they would infect it. You know, and and so that's how viruses spread. Now, my analogy to the way viruses spread these days is the difference between a sexually transmitted disease and an airborne. Uh, virus type of disease sexually transmitted diseases as bad as they are like aids and everything spread much more slowly than something that's airborne where you see in all like outbreak movies or contagion was a recent one if you have to take a floppy disk and stick it into a computer to spread a virus that's going to spread much more slowly especially when every computer in the world isn't connected to each other nowadays viruses can spread because all of our computers were connected to the internet and if the internet is the vector for this infection if it's on web pages A virus can spread much, much more quickly now today than it used to be able to spread. But despite the fact that back when Mac viruses were sexually transmitted, so to speak, they were still widespread enough for me to have gotten them and for every classic Mac user I know to have gotten them. Because they would spread more slowly, but they would spread just through this little means of floppy disk going from one place to the other, right? Uh, Now... So that was the old days that no one even remembers because nobody used Macs because they were toy computers and they had mice and only toy computers have mice, right? <laughs> and then Apple almost went out of business. and Then they came back and then a few people more started buying Macs and you had Mac OS X. And there's this period of time where the Macs really didn't have a problem with malware at all. And there was lots of debates about this and, and you know, the, the PC had tremendous problems with uh, viruses because... They were the massively dominant platform at the time. All of our computers got connected to each other, and so it was exploited, and Microsoft spent years trying to pin down Windows XP, and then you had the Vista disaster because they spent all this time trying to make the security better and all that stuff. During this time, the Mac was basically malware-free. You didn't have to think about malware. You didn't have to do anything. Mac users still did. They would always ask, what should I do about viruses? What should I do about malware? My question was, do nothing because there's nothing to protect yourself from. That won't always be the case, but right now, It's no point in killing yourself trying to protect yourself from threats that don't exist, right? This was the time during which Apple needed to be working its butt off. And I think it was trying to because this was the honeymoon period. Malware is not a problem on the Mac platform Apple now you should be spending this time to make sure that when inevitably if you're successful malware does become a problem on the Mac platform which we all know is coming it's just a certain just a matter of like you know it wasn't like the Mac wasn't vulnerable you could you could write malware for it really easily it was arguably more vulnerable than Windows but nobody cared the market share was too small or whatever eventually if you're a successful Apple, that's going to change and you're going to be vulnerable. So you better spend time nailing stuff down. And that's kind of what Apple's been trying to do. With, like sandboxing. This is all to prevent uh, malware type exploits. Get flash off the system by default. Don't install Java by default. Like just try to pin it down, pin it down, pin it down. Because this is the period of time during which, you know, you, you, have, you have this window to try to, to try to get your house in order before the inevitable malware comes. Windows didn't have that luxury. They had to do it like under live fire. They had to swap the engine of the car while it was running and just pin their operating system down while it's under constant attack, constantly reacting to things a patch of the week to, to patch some vulnerability and everyone's PC is being infected with viruses. And it was a mess for them. Apple had a window of time to really turn the screws down on its operating system. And also to its credit, when Apple made a new platform it came up with iOS, it did a really good job of locking this thing down. So far, malware has not been a problem on iOS and I think it is much, 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 much less vulnerable than the Mac to malware. Simply because there are fewer moving parts and just everything is much more nailed down on iOS. Everything is confined and and limited in in its authority to do stuff. The Mac is not like that. And the Mac is an older code base and so on and so forth, right? Well, it looks like time has run out for Apple. Uh, You know, the buzzer has rung. Apple is not done. It's like pencils down, no more working, and Apple's in the middle of its essay it didn't get done doing everything that it wanted to do. I think Apple would have liked it if it had a few more years of grace to say, can we just get sandboxing sorted out and get everybody into sandboxing, which is difficult because sandboxing, you know, there's a whole issues with existing applications having to change or limit their functionality to fit in sandboxing and Apple trying to negotiate with the developers. All right, we really want you to be sandboxed, but we do understand that we, we want your application still to work and not be frustrating to users. And this is dance that's still going on. And the first significant malware in the Mac OS X era has hit and infected 1% of the computers. So, time is up for Apple, and it's kind of sad that they didn't get done everything they wanted to do. Arguably, they didn't move fast enough. They were had other priorities in the early days of Mac OS X. One of those other priorities was, you know, making iOS, which I think was a, important for them to concentrate on that priority because it turns out to be the majority of their business at this point and is probably the future of the of the company. But it is kind of a shame that they didn't get farther along. And the one particular thing I'm going to ding them for is not so much technologically that they couldn't screw down the Mac platform to be tighter in, in the amount of time that they had, because I think it's probably more important to concentrate on iOS, which is the obviously the platform of the future, kickboxing sport of the future. Uh, but their policies... <laughs> yeah, no one's going to do that one. No, they won't. Their policies, like the, the way your company reacts to threats... <laughs> That's like a corporate policy decision and some uh, rejiggering your organization to react to that. And Apple has always been bad at that and has not been changing it. Like what you want to see is like, for example, this Java exploit that Flashback exploits. It's been around like it's been patched since February in the rest of the civilized world. But because Apple's like, nah, we don't really use Java and it's not installed by default. Who cares about this? Like they're not on top of their game in terms of getting out patches. They, in effect, kind of did this to themselves. Like, I don't know how long it took Flashback to go from zero infections to 1% of the install Mac installed base. But it might have been over a long period of time. And, it, you know, if Apple had patched this exploit as soon as the patch was available, this might not have been an issue at all. But they're so damn slow and so damn stingy about rolling out changes. Now, some of that is like, well, we don't want to have a patch every single week. And we, you know, but they, they're not. They're not fast enough. And them coming out now like, oh, here's three Java updates in a week. I, did, I put a link to the current Java update and a link to an Ars Technica story about this. They did three Java updates in a week. That's being reactive after 1% of your install base is infected. These are just policy decisions. Get a mechanism for dealing with hotfixes. Take them seriously. If you have some Java exploit and it's patched and the rest of the world has the patch, Mac users should have that patch. Don't wait six freaking months because like, oh, we'll roll it into the 10.7.4 update or whatever. Like, patch it out. They need a culture and a procedure of acknowledging exploits and acting on them quickly. And if you don't want to disrupt users by potentially screwing up their operating system, like, that's on you to figure out the technical solution to push out, like mandatory push out of patches to people, of software fixes without breaking their crap. That's part of being reactive to software threats. Uh, and it has, it's pretty much a sideshow to, oh, sandbox everything, lock down OS and get rid of the exploits. These, these are industry-wide things. Flash is not really their responsibility, and I think by not shipping it, they're basically abdicating that responsibility. But Java, even though they don't ship it, as you showed when you were experimenting in the last show, it gets installed automatically by Apple the second you do anything that involves Java. Uh, so it's on them to fix that. And I bet there are a bunch of these you know, security things that have been known for a long time that fixes are available for that Apple simply has not distributed and not integrated into their code base because they don't consider it a priority. That's something they should have changed a long time ago, and it's really embarrassing that now they've been caught with their pants down on that. Because it's not like this is a zero-day exploit where no one even knew about this exploit, and now it's infected all these Macs. It's a you know nine oh how many days is that one hundred-day exploit, or however long it's been since February. There's no excuse for that. So it's disappointing that time has run out, and it's very disappointing that Apple has not reorganized itself as a company to be the type of machine that I imagine Microsoft is at this point, having been proved you know in a crucible of fire of viruses. That Microsoft is ready at a moment's notice to hotfix everybody who's on their latest platform, providing fixes as soon as possible to the latest exploits as soon as they're available. Microsoft is not sitting on patches for things that have been patched since February. They're just not. They are are more proactive than that. And their organization is basically structured better to deal with security threats than Apple's is, and I think that's a shame. So, I'll give a- Apple a D minus on reactiveness to security threats and like a B minus on its ability to <laughs> revise its platform to be more secure because they're doing that. And it's taking them a while. And I can't really fault them for concentrating more on iOS because, from a business perspective, that makes sense. But the, the organizational stuff, bad job there. And by the way, I, I still have not found a single Mac in real life infected with this. None of my Macs at home or at work are no, infected. With it. I, I haven't. Talk to
0: anybody. I don't know anybody that has either. That doesn't that mean, of course, sense. that it it hasn't no, happened. That makes
1: sense because yeah. if I roll my hundred sided die, right, and I say uh, if I get a one, that means I'm going to find a virus. That would be a one percent. So it makes, you know, I have a ninety nine percent of not a chance of not finding that virus in any computers that I encounter. And I think I have rolled that hundred sided die in front of each computer, and it has not come up on the <laughs> one number that I selected. So this fits, I you know. But one percent is still a large number of people and it's such it's just so lame that this this happened at all because it's like it's not a zero day exploit something apple could have patched long ago and just didn't and seeing them panic with three patches in a single week first two of which didn't even have a thing to remove it and even the current one says it removes some variants of this virus well thanks a lot apple pretty lame
0: you know if if apple had been really smart as as you say you know all this time that apple has been I don't want to say impervious, but just not affected, for the most part, by any kind of virus, you would have thought that Apple would have been building up a really aggressive team behind the scenes just sitting there ready to pounce at the, first, the first sign of, oh, there's a problem. That's all right. We got 20 guys who have all they've been doing is, is waiting for this day, and now let them loose.
1: And like, they have that thing that detects malware, like they integrated that and like Snow Leopard, like they've been adding stuff to the operating system to try to be reactive to this and stuff, but the policies, not the mechanisms, like they have the way they have that signatures of malware thing and, you know, that's automatically downloaded to you and you don't even have a choice and it's happening in the background. There's no UI, you know, that thing like they built that thing, but their reaction to like things like known exploits with existing patches that they just need to integrate into their code base and release. Like they're 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 dropping the ball on the on the stupid corporate policy stuff, not on the technology stuff. Like just release the patch. Like all you needed was some guy to say our new policy is whenever a security vulnerability is found in insert software or technology here, Apache, PHP, Java, any of the millions of things that Apple integrates and ships, uh, we will integrate that patch and release it to our customers within X number of days. And X should not be 97, right? That's, you just have to lay down that policy and build the organization around that, but it just the sense of urgency wasn't there. I guess they like they felt good about like, oh, well, we got this malware detection and we can push out new <laughs> definitions, but fine stuff and it's like it, like how I, I this is what I keep asking. It. I haven't found a story telling me how long did it take to go from zero percent of Mac users to one percent? Did that happen overnight over a week, over a month, over six months? How long did it take for this thing to spread? How long did Apple have as this infection slowly spread and they did nothing right? Maybe it was really fast. I don't know. But the exploit has been known for a long time and the patch has been available for a long time. It's just it's inexcusable. So, yeah, the honeymoon period is over for Apple. Uh, now they really need to get on the ball. I think this infection is not that bad. It's not like it's uh, the per- not percentage wise, but like what the thing does there. Apple's lucky that this one wasn't like one that. uh Waits on people's computers and then then simultaneously erases all their hard drives on a particular date six months from now. Like that would be nasty, and that would give Apple a huge black eye. But it could have been. Apple's actions have not done anything to prevent that from happening. They're just lucky that this particular virus seems to be a boring botnet type of controlling thing, and now Apple's counteracting it. But blah. I guess i will save Instagram for another show. Yeah, I
0: think you have. We have to. We do. Is that it then that's it hundred 102 minutes I think I got one
1: non-stop Syracusa I got 143 here on my fancy new Skype 143 yeah one hour 43 minutes 15 seconds how come it Mark. says
0: on my thing it lapsed time 103 I don't know did you go through a wormhole has it really been 143 minutes
1: no one hour 43 minutes
0: oh one hour for well yeah hundred but I have a 103 uh, minutes we when we, get to 60, when,
1: when we get to sixty minutes, we change units and I we don't, say that's one
0: hour. Well, logic, logic doesn't. Logic
1: doesn't. Yeah. You. you oh, you mean the uh, the application software, not the concept.
0: <laughs> that's correct. That is correct, All right. sir. All right. All right. All right. So we'll wrap this thing up. If you have thoughts and comments for John Syracuse, so the best way to get them to him is to go to five by five dot tv slash contact. Pick hypercritical from that list. And uh, type what you, what you, now people, some people, John, they will send us email just to like, like they'll, they'll figure out your email address or mine and they'll email it to us that way outside there. It's like they're going to, you know, uh, above my head behind my back and I don't reply to those emails. I don't read them either. Uh, The only way to email about this show is to go through the proper channel, which is use that form. So, do that, and of course, you know, rate the show. Go to iTunes, go in there, rate the show. If you want to make John really happy, review the show. And you can follow him on Twitter, Syracuse, S-I-R-A, there's no Z in here, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, no Z. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We appreciate you listening, we'll be back again next week. Thank you, John.
1: Thank you, Dan.